Okay, bringing people into a new environment is the name of the game. Showing people the perspective of something uh, or everything that they don't have just in their day-to-day life. Mm-hmm. I feel like that is the key to what we're trying to do and what so many people are trying to do around the world when we're talking about change of the game, creating a new world. And a man who whose life, you know, we, we're, we're going to celebrate to get things started here, I think played a, a pivotal role and is an example of that. So right before we started recording last week, the news came down that uh, Michael K. Williams transitioned, that he passed away. And I wanted to make sure that all of the news came out and we learned everything that we could before yeah. uh, we talked about it here. So for today's downbeat, uh, again, to the point of bringing people into a new environment and showing them something different, uh, we're, we're going to uh, hear Michael K. Williams uh, talk a little bit to Stephen Colbert on how he put a very famous chef on to some new tastes. So let's take it was a listen. Really awesome. You know, I, was, I was nervous, right? Because you know, I got a call from Anthony. I was like, okay, what is this? So I was like, well, they said he wants you to show him Brooklyn. I was like, well, I'm from the hood. Is he okay with that? I'm from Flatbush. You know, we, you know, not take, I'm not taking him to you know, bougie Williamsburg where I live now. We're going to the hood, right? So, um, um, yeah, he was down with that, man. So we're walking in, in my projects on the block where I'm literally, like, was raised on. And then I took him to a, a restaurant uh, in Crown Heights called Glorious, the Caribbean spot. I said, let me see how bad you, how good you know food, right? If you know how to eat oxtails, you're my kind of guy. That dude knew how to eat oxtails. You got to eat it with your hands. You got to pick it up and just go in for it. You hold it aside, <laughs> kind of... I like I like hearing this story. And of course, he's talking about Anthony Bourdain, this person who, you know, uh, another person we've lost who, you know, we we lift up as one of the ultimates when it comes to ethno food or there there must be some word around that, you know, the study of people and food. But, you know, the fact that Michael K. Williams could even be his bridge into something like that, this this man, you know, Anthony Bourdain, who has gone all over the world and tasted all types of food and Michael K. Williams can, you know, bring him still into something new. I think that's just one example of the many ways that he was able uh, to do that throughout his career, at, not only as an actor, but as a, a human being, as a person. Ethnogastro. What, what, would, what would the study of ethnogastro I, that's I mean, that be. sounds about right. Okay. You know, the first time that I ran into him was actually in The Sopranos. So this would have been uh, still in the late 90s, early 2000s, he was in one episode uh, running what he affectionately referred to as the Booten Holiday Inn. Okay. This is where one of the char- one of the other characters had to go and hide out at Ray Ray's place in the Booten Projects. <laughs> and they set him up very early on as uh, a character that, you know, you don't trifle with. He was smart and um, was also hip to what he was about i mean he knows you know he knew why this character was there yeah you know to he was hiding from trying you know trying to keep from getting whacked sure sure you he he mentioned uh in that clip the wire or that the kids who are running after them may be too young to watch the wire i haven't seen any of the sopranos i also haven't seen any of the wire is that yeah. a is that a, a michael k williams performance that you would recommend to people that's the one that cemented his career for sure omar little as a character though he really threaded a needle he really created a, a singular character that was so complex that i think his performance alone should be studied and oh and oh sorry and, omar little is the character that michael k williams played that's right Got um it. so um 
I I always thought of him as Jesus at his angriest. Okay. And I don't mean, you know, and I'm not trying to be blasphemous here, but what I'm trying to say is that when there's when somebody needed to be smited, mm-hmm. it was that person. There was no collateral damage. Um, he was vicious in the street, but also uh, behind the scenes in private, he was very tender, a uh, gay man. And to live that lifestyle in that world mm-hmm. and the way that he did it, just such a complex character. Yeah. And whenever you heard Omar whistle, you know, a hunting we will go, okay. somebody was about to get shot. Yeah, that's interesting. I'm, I'm really grateful to know uh michael k williams you know just through media as himself i can't really speak to any character he ever played i understand he was on boardwalk empire as well see all all these you know all these shows that you know don't don't hit my my demographic i suppose but uh i i used to watch a show on vice called uh, black market dispatches and it just goes all around the world showing different black markets and the reasons they exist and the people the families that are connected to them and michael k williams did a really great job of you know, bringing somebody like me through my TV into uh, illegal gambling halls and um, illegal strip clubs and the mm. drug trade and all of that stuff as it really exists in American cities and in world cities. And, wow. And, and this, that's called what? It was called Black Market Dispatches. The show used to be on demand for Vice, but they, they sold a lot of their stuff. And I forget, maybe it's FX or something. You can find it. You won't find it for free probably, but really incredible show um, that, that really showed his heart, you know, Michael K. Williams, uh, even in some of the post interviews for uh, the tapings of the show, would talk about how after they cut off the cameras, there would be full fledged gangsters. You know, they would take off their uh, masks and all that stuff because you know their their uh, identities were being held Anonymous, in the yeah. show. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they would take off their masks and everything and beg Michael K. Williams to just take them with him, take them away from those streets. So My this God, is this really? is this is someone who really made connections with these people. He was, you know, everybody knows I listened to the Joe Budden podcast. Joe Budden talked about his, uh, his many different interactions, run-ins with Michael K. Williams and talked about how phenomenal of a photographer he was, how great of a dancer he was, how Mm -hmm. he could, uh, he was great at DJing, like he could scratch tapes and do all of that stuff. So really a multifaceted human being that, uh, that I, I really wanted to make sure that uh, uh, we we honored as we started this opus. There's so many folks out there who we don't celebrate, and unfortunately, who we won't celebrate until they pass on. But rest in power and rest in peace to Michael K. Williams. As I as I said, you know, just uh, open it up, exposing people to new perspectives and to new ideas is a vital part of progress. That's what he you know tried to do with his entire life, and that's what we're trying to do here on this podcast. That's true. How about we get started? I'm Scott Blankenship. And this 
is Triloquy, Opus 116. Thank you, everyone, for coming along to listen to this show of ours. To the returning listeners, thank you so much for coming back week after week. We couldn't do it without you, and we are greatly indebted to your dedication to this podcast. To new folks or folks who have only come by for two or three or maybe even four opuses. Welcome and thank you for checking it out. Triloquy is a podcast built to decolonize the phrase classical music and everything that we think about when it comes to that phrase. We take the genre that we have dedicated so much of our lives to, the so-called genre, maybe I can say, and we tie it with real world events, real opinions, and everything else that puts the trill in uh, in Triloquy. So here we are. <laughs> thank you very much. Uh, Support for Triloquy, in addition to your support, comes from the Shuttleworth Foundation. The Shuttleworth Foundation funds individuals who are unafraid to reimagine the world and the way we live in it. For more information on the Shuttleworth Foundation, just visit shuttlefoundation.org. I also want to send a huge shout out and thank you to the McPhail Music Center here in Minnesota over in Minneapolis. I had the honor of being the keynote speaker at their Anacrusis event. I talked about developing uh, communities, building rapport with uh, different communities by affirming their narratives. So often we think of people as only that, only as bodies, individuals, different shades of humanity to check our boxes with, but we have to engage what people think and what people believe to really build those communities. So that's what I spoke to. They gave me, I'm I'm sure you saw it, Scott, uh, as a part of my uh, gift, they gave me that baton over there with that really nice case. So I guess I, I need to find some musicians to wave a stick at, or 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 maybe not, you know. But we'll see. <laughs> I also want to, uh, before we get into movement, once and a uh, thank you and a continued shout out to the American Composers Forum. ACF um, had their our, I should say, uh, racial equity summit this past weekend. You can find recordings of that um, over on the and links over on the ACF website, also on YouTube, I believe. And I'm going to speak to a few of the points that were made at the racial equity summit in the fourth movement of this opus in the triloquy but for right now we'll hop into movement one all right scott we're going to start with a a little pop culture segment i suppose some some mini accidentals that we're shoving into one so how about uh how about we get started what, oh, what's, you know the, what? what's the first one uh, <laughs> let me I, I just remember this i uh, give me a natural here i need to set a natural okay uh, to, the, to the people who emailed me wanting to know if I suddenly had a woman in my life, if I oh, oh they're because, curious yeah now. because oh they need to know. Um, I said <laughs> last week that I thought that little trip to heaven was a wedding song, and then mm-hmm. I learned it on the guitar and all that. Uh, go back and re-listen to what I said. I did not say that there was somebody that I was all of a sudden going to propose to. All I said was I'm ready to play it. Oh, I mean, they're, just, they're just they're just making sure you're still on the market. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, but but, yeah. but anyway, for our, our little um, our little pop culture uh, accidentals here, I'm, I'm going to go ahead and um, I'll, I'll get us started with a oh, not with a flap, sorry, with a sharp. Let me let me send a few more just okay. to make sure. I'm I'm starting with a sharp. So, um, you've heard of the show Big Brother. Right. You yep. said you haven't seen an episode, but nope. you you know what basically it's about. People sure. go into a house, voting each other out and and uh, vying for a million dollars. I used to watch it early on, like, you know, like I said, maybe seasons three through eight or something. And they're on season 20 something now. But and so they vote to kick each week. One person is voted on to get kicked off. Right. 
Does right. any does anybody ever get kicked on? Kicked on. Yeah. Have you ever been kicked on a show? I uh, I, I, I don't know, and and I'm gonna give that joke a flat. Oh, that's fine. <laughs> Man, I don't know any of my buttons today. I'm telling you. Go ahead. Any, I didn't I didn't mean to interrupt. Any, Go ahead. Anyway, so in the history of Big Brother, there has never been a black winner. Okay. I even saw a chart that said in the past 11 seasons, only one black person has made it to the final six contestants. So it's been, you know, pretty locked down in there. But uh, CBS has I think that's who it belongs to CBS. They have made a a new rule when it comes to their reality shows Uh, in light of all the conversations about equity and, and diversity. They require a certain percentage of people of color on these shows. Now, I'll I'll start by saying that when I was watching Big Brother, it was always, you know, never more than than two black people, usually just one in in the seasons that Mm -hmm. I watched. But that's not what the country looks like. Right. That's not what the world looks like. So they said they had to change something. So for this season of Big Brother, they had six black people. And at the beginning of (laughs) the, the season, apparently, those six black folks, they got together and formed an alliance that is now known as the cookout so week after week people were getting uh, booted out of the house you know losing their opportunity to to get that money well here we are with the final six <laughs> and all six of them are who you guessed it the members cookout. of the cookout okay so the reaction to that has been um how spicy. can I say? <laughs> Very spicy. I'm going to read just a little bit here. This is from ScreenRant.com. The uh, the headline is Big Brother. Julie Chin disputes claims cookout alliance is racist. Longtime Big Brother host Julie Chin has disputed claims that the cookout alliance is racist. The cookout alliance is made up of six players who are all people of color. They list the names here and it sort of, you know, gives some of the um, history of uh, what happened this season. Uh, it says here, although the alliance of six only has to survive two more evictions to successfully make it to the end of the game together, there is still time for things to go wrong. Last week, Julie announced that the next two live shows will each can Consist of a double eviction. If one of the six members does not win power during this week's double eviction, a cookout member will be sent to the jury house. So, you know, everything, all great things come to an end. Not all six people could, you know, win the money. It's only going to be one. But as you can imagine, a lot of folks are are really pissed. So, so they're just changing up the rules. Here near the end, now they're adding the double <laughs> eviction. Now I think there've been there there've been some double evictions in the end. And All they, right, well, see, I don't and know. They, and I've never es- seen it. And they especially do that to sort of you know get the season going and to also make sure that the folks in the house aren't getting too bored or whatever. Because you remember they're completely isolated. They have no internet, no television. There's you know they're 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 broken off from from the outside world. So sometimes they have to you know get some more activities going in the house because you know it's easy for it to start to no, feel like jail. I'm know? not doing that show. I'm not doing that show. Um, but I mean, what do you what do you think? What 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 you know? Just knowing what you know, knowing what you've heard, what are your reactions to people that say the Cookout Alliance is a racist alliance? Um, I'm I'm more concerned over um, the idea that these people will now be pitted against one another. Sure. Sure. Um, that's that's the that's the the way capitalism rolls though, isn't it? At at some point you got to fight each other it seems. 
It's too bad that you haven't seen any of these because I would be interested in getting your take on who you thought might make it through. Oh, the five. Well, you you wouldn't know them anyway. I wouldn't. <laughs> I wouldn't. I mean, my my thing is when it comes to that concept of equity that no one seems to be able to understand. This is what that looks like. The network made a decision based on the conversations that have been happening and. Here we are. I think it's so short-sighted to call these folks racist for uh, banning together when you think about, you know, what I said at the very beginning of this. There has never been a black winner. And in the past 11 seasons, there's only been one black person in the in the top six. So, mm. you know, where where was the outcry when all of these alliances over these 20 something seasons of this show only had white people in it? Oh, that wasn't a problem because, well, I don't we know. We, we, we all know. Right. Um, and I, I really honor uh, Julie Chin for sticking, you know, sticking to her guns and and saying, no, this is good. And as a woman of color herself, I'm sure she can you know, speak to the challenges of network television and reality shows and the characters that we're booked on these shows to play. Because, you know, it's it's always the black guy who is this or, or who is that. It's never just black people, you know, on these shows until now. So I think this is a, a really good thing. And this is what equity looks like. So. To the people who are upset, I mean, you, stay mad. I guess you should have been born black. You kind of have me thinking I want to check some highlight reels or something <laughs> just to see what's a, what's up. Yeah. But, you know, uh, talking about going a long time without a black winner, um, how about 74 years it has taken for the Miss Ireland pageant to name a black woman winner? Yeah, I didn't even know that there were black people in Ireland. <laughs> There's black people everywhere, though, right? I didn't know they were in Ireland. Well, I didn't know. I was there in uh, 2005, and I didn't see many. Not, uh, but you did see some. Uh, I can't. I can't even for sure say that they they might have been from Pakistan. Sure, or, sure. Uh, but I'm talking about blacks. That, you don't not remember seeing any? Not that See, I remember. So that's why this is surprising to me, and this is why you know I, I felt like there weren't any black folks over there. But you bring up a very good point. Is what did the rest of that pageant field look like? I didn't see any other pictures. Mm -hmm. So was there only one black woman even competing? Maybe so. I mean, I don't, like I said, I don't, I don't know of a history of black folks in Ireland, but it's really great. What's her name, by the way? Her name is Pamela Uba. So Pamela Uba. Uh, congratulations, by con the way. Congratulations. Yeah, let me uh, give you some applause. Congratulations to Pamela Uba. You said... Uh, but before we started taping, you you told me that uh, she is you know first generation. Her parents moved to Ireland from somewhere else, you know? right from South Africa. Yeah, um, and you know through climbing the ranks, going to school, doing your crunches. I don't know. I, I think those pageants are a little weird in the 21st century, especially uh, considering everything we talk about with body politics and, sure. and, and, and all of those sorts of things, respectability, exceptionalism, um, all of that. And I think this is interesting because it certainly puts 
Irish culture in a different light, I think. When we think about the Irish woman or or someone who is, you know, just beautiful and and in the context of Ireland, we're thinking of somebody with very fair skin, probably freckles and bright red hair. That's going to be different now nice. that the whole country, at least when it comes to this competition, is being represented by a black woman. I think that's Well, incredible. in the article, she obviously mentioned that all of the racist commentary goes along with it. And if you know you know how they treated Meghan Markle. So, oh sure. You know, oh, Ireland wasn't treating her right. I didn't no, know no, that. No, no, no. Of course, she was up against. The I don't. I don't. I don't keep up with 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 the Western European uh, culture like you do. You have an affinity for those folks. Mm. But. <laughs> well, I won't, I won't push from. a button. I'm that's, not going to push a button. Yes, you are. Oh, you're from. That, see, and this is and see. This is what we need to talk about. You're from Omaha, right? But you say you're from Ireland. My heritage is English and Irish. Okay. Okay. I um My mother's maiden name was Alan and my grandmother's maiden name was Harris. I struggle sometimes with the conversation of heritage when it comes to white folks in the United States because how do you know? I mean, I mean and and the, and the only reason I ask that is because there's so much I have learned about genealogy from um seeing my mom map it out, things that you know, we think we know about ourselves or based on our last names mm-hmm. that, I mean, so ha- have you, have, have you done that? I, I, I'll, I'll stop there. Have you, I have, have you done that digging? I have family members who have done quite a bit of genealogy study, but my grandfather on my father's side was a hell of a storyteller. Okay. And uh, on my mother's side, my grandmother, she would have people in stitches spinning yarns. Mm. And so uh, I got it orally, you know, handed okay. handed down word of mouth is how uh, I found out about things. But yeah, yeah. The, I mean, the only the other main reason I raise an eyebrow when when I hear white Americans talking about heritage is because when I I remember being a teenager and every white person that I ever met was Italian allegedly. So <laughs> when when I hear <laughs> okay or or Greek or <laughs> or whatever I'm like, "Oh, okay. All right. Well, but anyway, any, any anything else on uh Pamela uh, Congratulations Udo? to Pamela Uba. Yeah, Uba. Sorry, Pamela Uba. Yeah. I think this is going to be big for just the general you know, conversation of Irish culture globally. You talk about, you know, you you love to, you know, I, I see you as that that guy who is, well, it's actually Murphy's instead of Guinness or whatever. Or, you know, what is the, <laughs> which is another conversation, but uh, you also talk about, you know, the idea of wearing orange or green mm-hmm. on St. Patrick's Day. So mm-hmm. all, all of these it's little very specific. all of these little microaggressions that you, you throw out to people who think they know something <laughs> about <laughs> Ireland. Now you get to correct them when it comes to the physical appearance okay. of someone who is beautiful and Irish. So I, 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 hope, I cannot wait I, I hope to correct I you will do that them. work as well. I cannot wait I to correct them. I hope you'll do that them. work as well. Anything else in this little um in this little uh pop culture uh accidental yeah. that we're doing this yeah week. i think i remember you saying once that you might go to an actual sporting event if they would uh sing the black national anthem oh yeah it happened baby <laughs> and they're mad and, tell me more and the comments uh are a shit show well where did it happen <laughs> the um black national anthem was recently sung at an nfl Monday night football game, so that would have been last week, yeah. Okay, and let, um, so so let me ask you a question real quick: Who, what what demographic 
is represented most on the field of these of these NFL teams? Black men. Oh, okay. Oh, okay. Just making sure that I'm not crazy. But they're mad that the black national anthem was was sung for those black players and for all of the and players. And for the quite black frankly. people in the audience. Yeah, the black people in the audience and and the white people and the and you know what whatever uh, other race in the audience as well. Lift what are the what are the words? Lift every, every voice. voice. But um, if you thought they were pissed off about the uh, taking a knee, that ain't nothing. Okay, <laughs> compared to how pissed off. So what have some you seen? Folks are now. But what have you seen? Well, what's the story? The story is uh, there's some racist people that have had it with the NFL now. <laughs> That's what it is. Well. I mean, God bless them. I don't watch football. I, that is that is 21st century slavery, as but far even, as I'm concerned. But even Bill Maher has uh, uh, picked up the football and run oh, with it. Oh, even Bill Maher. Yeah. Okay, okay. Yeah. So you got the article there that says, uh, Bill Maher says the left, in, in quotes, is embarrassing him. Whoops, sorry, I didn't mean to embarrass you, Bill. And complains about the Black National Anthem. That's in the raw story. Uh, he returned to the airwaves on Friday, once again discussed his rightward shift politically. To me, when people say to me sometimes like, boy, you know, you go after the left a lot these days. Why? Because you're embarrassing me. And I guess that um, the Black National Anthem is, uh, is part and parcel with that. It's interesting that folks talk about folks like Bill Maher leaning to the right because a lot of us saw it the whole time. Black national anthem. Maybe now we should get rid of our national anthem, but I think that we should have one national anthem. Mar said. Hmm. Well, good. good Just thing, one. Yeah. Good. Good thing that uh, I don't care about what he says. So he hit you. <laughs> he punched you right in the eye. I, I give a you, damn. You had to tell me who the man was. So anyway, <laughs> we have uh, folks mad about black folks uh, climbing the ranks in reality TV. They're mad because we're winning uh, uh, Miss Ireland, and they're mad. Uh, that our less vi- far less violent and far more uplifting national anthem is being platformed at sporting events where most of the folks who y'all are betting on and going to buy this merchandise for are black people. So, you know, just the world as it's been. It's fine. Everything's fine. So, yeah. yeah. Well, that's what I have to say on that. <laughs> I'm just Scotty Appleseed. Well, I'm just dropping seeds. Well, so I guess we had a, a sharp, a flat, and a natural in there. So, yeah. All, all of the accidentals. So uh, let's let's get out of this one with uh, a little music by Phil Lynott. Tell me a little bit about Phil Lynott, because I didn't know this name before yeah. I Googled Black Irish Singer. Yeah, <laughs> he is uh, one of the founding members, frontman, and bassist for Thin Lizzy, okay. which was a band formed in the late 60s, early 70s out of Dublin. Yeah, black, black, and, black uh, people have a history there, apparently. Uh, the boys are back in town, Yeah, you know. That you hear that uh, boys are back in town, the boys are back in town. That's the one people know, yeah. And uh, he's got a great, sort of raspy voice that works with uh, they did a cover of Whiskey in the Jar, which was great. And um, you found this 
Kathleen. Yeah, there's a, t- is, a a tune. It doesn't say by the. Tell me the band again. Sorry, Thin Lizzy. It, it, it doesn't say this. Ba- this song is by Thin Lizzy. It it uh, credits Phil Lynott here again. This black Irishman who yeah. I didn't realize existed. So yeah, the tune is called Kathleen, subtitled "A Beautiful Irish Girl." So I thought that could be some nice music to use to transition, especially with us talking about uh, Pamela Uba, the uh, first black Miss Ireland. Yeah. So here's a little bit of this tune by Phil Lynott to get us to our next accidental. And if the song that I write is no good Won't you listen to it please anyway And if the words that I write are misunderstood Won't you listen to them please anyway The song is for Kathleen Kathleen, Kathleen A beautiful girl he I mean, reminds it's, me. It's a, got me moving. He reminds me a little bit of Bob Geldof in that recording. Okay, bit. Bob Geldof. Don't yeah. know who that is either. Boomtown Rats. Oh, okay. Nothing. Phenomenal. No. Yeah. <laughs> There's a lot of music out there in the world. Mm. You expect me to know all of it? <laughs> anyway, shout out to Phil Lynott. Always learning. You know, that's that's what I love about uh, doing this show is that I'm I'm learning as well. You mm. know, black singers. In Ireland, with a, a history there, not just this new thing. So, you know, what, what that makes me ask is how many qualified young women for Miss Ireland have there already been that were just ignored? Yeah, that's what I was curious. Like, who, who else was in the pageant? Or even even in years, uh, even in years past. Sure, it's seventy-four like, years worth. It, right. It's it, it's like I I appreciate the reaction to the conversations around mm-hmm. race that we're having, but it also forces some accountability out of these organizations. You're not going to tell me that Pam Uba is the first black woman or the first woman of color in Ireland to try to try to go compete. out for 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 something like this. Yeah. Um, it had me thinking about something else it's it slipped my mind for now but uh oh what i was gonna say listening to uh, a beautiful irish girl this uh this tune by uh phil lynott and one of my uh, sociology classes in undergraduate the teacher one day and i wish i could remember her name but she went on this long rant i mean she was talking for about 20 minutes about how men specifically need to stop using the word girl in reference to grown women and that's a a, a conversation that a lot of people are having now that's sort of obvious these days but back in I graduated undergrad in 2010 so you know back in 2008 2009 uh, 10 11 12 years ago there were you know conversations that seem very strange to a lot of people when it comes to this uh quote unquote wokeness that people complain about and mm. and that was one and it, it took me a a little while to really understand what she was saying because as a black gay man you know <laughs> we use the word girl to talk about everything or sure. she to talk about everything sure. this coffee she's strong you know mm. that <laughs> mm. stuff like that but I, I just wanted to name that before you know we get into this next accidental especially Especially considering that song, it's titled, this is from the New York Times, Top Orchestras Have No Female Conductors. It's change coming. Snare. So again, so again, yeah, you're right. Where's my uh, yep. problematic title alert? So I know a lot of people and I know there are a lot of women who don't see a problem with saying 
female musician, female conductor. I uh, that that's 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 weird for me because we don't say we don't say male conductor. No, we don't say male, male rapper, violinist. You know, <laughs> yeah. so I, I I think you know the and the writer of this is not a woman. So there's a conversation there as yep. well. Yep. Um, there's a whole room of editors and, and all sorts of folks, maybe a, a diverse uh, showing up there at the New York Times that saw that title and 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 didn't say anything. So I, I before we even get into it, I have to critique that thing, that that one issue. Secondly, top orchestras, top orchestras. What does what does what that do mean? You say, right. What, what, what do you well, mean by top orchestras? There are so many systems, problematic systems that are being maintained in language that we don't think anything about. We think it's splitting hairs to address it. But I don't I don't think it is. And in, in the same way that the conversation of calling grown women girls like hey girl or whatever has evolved in the way that I learned, you know, back in the uh, in the late oddies. I feel like there are so many more of those conversations and realizations we need to come to, and two of them are right there in the title of the article. Well, Marin Alsop is the conductor that's highlighted and talking about her recent departure from Baltimore. So one can assume what level of orchestra they're talking about by framing it that way. Oh. You know, they're probably talking about. A big city orchestra, right? And I didn't know Baltimore County is one of those top orchestras, but you don't think no shade, but shade, but no shade. I'm talking large cities, <laughs> sure, large sure. cities. Uh, well, the you know the orchestra that they uh, they repeatedly say is the top orchestra is which one? Do you do you do you know what what they what is what is arguably you know. I won't. How, how can I say this? The orchestra that most people in the Western classical music field would consider the top orchestra is what? In the United States. Yeah. Is New what? York Philharmonic. No, no. No. And that's Who? my point. The Cleveland Orchestra. Really? That, that, I would have said, second, I would have said Chicago. Yep. No. It, it's definitely the Cleveland Orchestra. Huh. And Cleveland, Ohio isn't the largest city or nothing. They're just, you know, the orchestra that maintains the respectability of classical music the best, but they're all white seasons. Hey. Well, how about over there in Buffalo? Is Buffalo a small city? Because we've got Joanne Folletta there just for, what, 20 years? Yeah, no, that, that's a big deal. But are they... But look, but, but before we get too far off the point I'm trying to make, you understand what I'm saying is that we have to critique every little thing. You know, female conductor, that phrase, but also top orchestra. I get be you. Because... We don't think of Buffalo when we think of uh, top orchestras as, as we problematically, you know, uh, thought of that phrase in the past. I think it's uh, when people say the big five, they're talking about Cleveland, um, Boston, Philadelphia, New York and Chicago. Not mm -hmm. necessarily in that order, mm -hmm. but that 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 all of that has to go. Excuse me, if we're going to move, move forward. And I right, just want right. to make sure that we're, we're naming that before we even get into this. Okay, let me read a little bit of this. It says, for years, they have worked their way to the top of the classical music industry. They have confronted stereotypes that are too weak to lead, that they are too weak to lead. They have shared advice about how to deal with sexist comments and even how to dress. Now, a group of women could be on the cusp of breaking barriers in one of music's most stubbornly homogenous spheres, the male-dominated world of 
orchestral conducting. You already mentioned that uh, Marin Alsup is uh, named in here. I think they uh, they, they might give a, a, a shout out to uh, Joanne Folletta. But the, the woman that I wanted to highlight from uh, this article is Jerry Lynn Johnson. So Jerry Lynn Johnson uh, is a black woman. She's based in Philadelphia and is the conductor of the Black Pearl Chamber Orchestra. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it just highlights again the fact that you can't really use that phrase top orchestra and the way that we're used to using it because that's shitting on the work that Jerry Lynn Johnson is doing with those incredible uh, musicians in that orchestra that folks may not have necessarily heard of and wouldn't consider a top orchestra, but it's very important, a vital part of of the East coast and uh, the, the whole, you know, nation when it comes to uh, orchestras and the conversation of uh, women leaders anyway. Um, Jerry Lynn Johnson uh, is quoted here as saying, female leadership is more necessary now than it ever was. We need to allow the insight and perspective of someone who has been kept out of the halls of power to create more inroads for other people. And I wanted to make sure that I got that quote out from her because she's doing some really incredible work. And when she's talking about allowing insight and perspective of someone who has been kept out, you know, knowing me, I have to dig into the intersections of this conversation. You know, is she talking about um, just women in that space? Or is she talking about more? Is she talking about uh, the fact that it's even harder for black women as we as as this as has been proven Mm -hmm. over the years? You know, I think, you know, her, her words make me think about the fact that it has to be more than just the representation, more than just being in the space. You know, we need we need these women who are, are rising the ranks and rightfully so to not fall into the same trap that these men have fallen into, which is maintaining the status quo. We need the white women conductors to fight for racial equity for other women of color in those spaces. You know, we need women conductors to do something different programming wise. You know, it's not it's it's not benefiting anyone for us to, you know, have this renewed ecosystem and still be listening to Beethoven and still be listening to Brahms or at least centering that. So as we move forward and really trying to uh, uh, critique the podium because I you know I, it's not a problem for me to critique the, the podium uh, but but even as we start to get women into those positions we need to make sure we're centering the words and the perspectives of folks like Jerry Lynn Johnson Kalina Bovell who we celebrate a lot on this uh, podcast and all of the other women of color out there really pushing for 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 something different there's always a little dust in the corners as again as 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 my teacher says and as i say all the time and i I hope that we can keep that conversation going as we're talking about uh more women in leadership positions in orchestras i'd like to give a shout out to sabrina maria alfonso i've interviewed her a couple times she's uh the founder and conductor and music director chief cook and bottle washer with the south florida symphony orchestra so she's been uh uh, that's a mobile orchestra too. Yeah. So I mean, if if you're looking at at, a, at somebody with leadership skills and keeping a band together, mm-hmm. some folks like Sabrina should get a shot at a bigger podium, right? Yeah. Um, the uh, the article. Let me let, let me see if I can 
find this. I didn't mean to drag this was, out longer than you wanted to. No, no, no. It was. Uh, let me see. Let me search Naze. So here we go. I'm, I'm gonna uh, read here, and this is still talking about uh, Jerry Lynn Johnson. It says Johnson, who is black, says she felt ensembles seem more willing to take chances on young men than young women. While the average age of music directors skews older, American orchestras have shown a willingness to hire charismatic young men, such as Gustavo Dudamel, who was named to lead the Los Angeles Philharmonic in 2007 when he was 26. Mm -hmm. Yannick Neze Sagan was 35 when he was hired by the Philadelphia Orchestra in 2010. Okay, what did I say Jerry Lynn Johnson does? She's the conductor of the Black Pearl Chamber Orchestra in Philadelphia. That group was founded in 2008. So you mean to tell me that uh, Jerry Lynn Johnson didn't uh, put forward any paperwork, didn't apply at all for the Philadelphia Orchestra position, or were they just more interested in having a man on the podium, okay? you and, and I don't know the inside. Maybe Jerry Lynn Johnson did not apply, but I find it hard to believe that the Philadelphia Orchestra, in the global search that they did for a music director, didn't know about the black woman conductor in their very town. So... Uh, 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 again, we, we have to name these things sure. and have to point these things out. And we have to uh, continue to inspire our women conductors, especially our white women conductors, to always think about the intersectional issues that are, are there. And to remember that there are black women out here who are being completely looked over and not even considered, even with the rise of more women conductors in the field. There's Again, there's always a little dust in the corner, and I hope that we will continue to uh, be brave enough to critique all of these things as we move forward. Because at the end of the day, like I, like I said, what work is being done if these women are being put into these positions of power and the boards, the, the predominantly male boards, are trying to maintain the, the programming that will bring in the same old dollars? You know, Marin, we, we have to Marin talk about that. Some, yeah, Marin said something similar on her way out. You know, she she said, "I told him you got to get out of that tower," and she and she couldn't push it over. Yeah, so she, she she couldn't so push she it left. over. Yeah. So you know, hats off to uh, Marin Alsop, one of the many women, you know, pushing and trying. When I see somebody in one of these positions, and it's the the same old thing, the representation of it all goes away from me because I don't see someone who's really pushing that status quo. And you know, is it the job of uh, musicians or you know folks in these positions to do that I think that's a conversation we sort of talked about that last week uh, with uh, the New York Times article on Jesse Montgomery and the you know the way that Jesse was saying that I'm just here to uh, be a, a, a composer I, I'm not always trying to be a social justice warrior and I and I get all of that but there is there's too much work to be done for folks in positions of power alleged positions of power anyway to to do nothing and I, I have to start looking at anybody funny who's in those positions maintaining the status quo so again i know it sounds like double talk for me a lot but no, shout, shout out to the women uh conductors and you have work to do you have a job to do yeah someone wrote in to me about that too that um that we didn't give enough respect to jesse and i had to write back and say we both love jesse you got to go back and listen but what we do on this podcast is look at the other implications and the other ways that these stories are are read and understood. That's that's two emails that didn't make it to me. I, I guess y'all know what y'all get when y'all send me the messages. But <laughs> I, people write to me. No, I think I, I think that's great. Uh, but oh, so I guess they're saying that you need to put some respect on Jesse's name. <laughs> and and I, I wrote back to the. I know who the guy is. Okay, I know who it is. But anyway. I wrote back to him and I said, "Listen to it again." We both said that we 
we love Jesse's music. We look at things differently. And I also provided him a link to This American Life, because if you don't want somebody looking at the undercurrents in some of these articles, then maybe you want something you know nice and easy to digest so. yeah <laughs> anyway like i said shout out to all of the women conductors i'm rooting for y'all i'm rooting for y'all to make change another one of the uh as we transition out of this we have one more uh, accidental to get to real quick but as we transition out of this i wanted to give uh, a special moment to another one of the women conductors who's featured uh in the new york times article her name is Susanna malky i had the pleasure of performing under her baton in detroit i definitely remember that there was a Thomas Addis violin concerto on the program and Thomas Addis is is new music so-called crunchy music so that definitely took some time and some attention out of the uh, folks in the orchestra I wish I could remember I almost want to say that pictures uh, pictures at an exhibition was on the program but anyway a really incredible conductor you know one of the only conductors that I think back in my memory and and uh, all of my time in orchestras and and think about favorably you know there's sure. <laughs> there's Susanna yeah. Malky yeah. I've um, I've performed under uh, Mayan Chin a few times and she always brings some really incredible stuff uh, to the podium but I, I wanted to um, uh, highlight a performance led by Susanna Malky this is a piece of music called Circle Malky Map. It's by a composer, a woman composer named Kaja Sarajo. Sarajo. Uh, I hope I'm pronouncing your name correctly. Kaja Sarajo. It's called Circle Map, a uh, composition from the year 2012. Really uh, exciting composition that I've enjoyed uh, listening to a little bit of. So here's the last little bit of it as performed by the Finnish Radio Symphony Orchestra. Circle Map by Kaja Sarajo. Again, when I'm talking about doing something different and pushing for change, the receipts are already going to be there for a lot of these women compo- uh, conductors, maybe even most of them. I already talked about the the Thomas Addis mm-hmm. that uh, she led, Susanna Malky in Detroit. We're hearing uh, this piece of music by uh, Kaja Sarriaho. So there's that general aesthetic that, it, you know, it, it just it's obvious to me that this is a conductor who is interested in the next step, interested in moving the genre and the practice of orchestral rehearsal and orchestral performance to a new level. And I think it's exciting to think about. We need to make sure that, you know, this is this is remaining a part of the conversation as well as representation. You know, we, we, we it has to all mix into one. You know, mm-hmm. even uh, the uh, uh, I'm thinking right now of uh, Apo Shu with the Women's Philharmonic. Yeah. You know, there are recordings that that orchestra made specifically of the music of Florence Price that 
it's almost impossible to find anywhere else. I'm thinking of uh, pieces of music like The Oak by Florence Price or her Mississippi River Suite. These are pieces of music that we probably wouldn't know if it weren't for the women's philharmonic. And we especially wouldn't know it if those groups were playing Brahms and Beethoven. So sure. again, just ha rehashing the point that it's it's more than the representation. It's the work that you have to do when you become the representation. So huge shout out to Susanna Malki and all of the women out there changing the game in classical music. The last sentence of that article, I meant to say, um, let me let me scroll down here really quick. Um, uh, it says there are some really amazing women out there. I look at it and I think, wow, it's 2021. What are we waiting for? Well, what are we waiting for is some of these uh, men to step out of the way, to step off the podium. And that's and that's just that. Okay. Mm -hmm. Anyway, fi uh, final um, accidental. We're going over to slip disc. So you are you are. I don't even know, know why you, you already know. I don't know why you give this guy air. <laughs> I'm gonna give it a flat as well. Uh, I'm gonna uh, give a shout out to Caesar. Caesar sent me this, mm -hmm. and I think it's very interesting. We're, we're gonna take a look. Um, it says English orchestra sax have its players to become more. Diverse. Well, in first quotes, and foremost, it sounds like you're doing the, the right thing. <laughs> in, in quotes, more diverse. Right. There's yeah. got to be a dig. Yeah. All right. Let's uh, let's read here a little bit what Norman Lebrecht's talking about. He said, we understand that English. He didn't write anything. He wrote three lines and then po pasted a letter in there. Okay, let, 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 okay, so let's read his three lines. It says, We understand that English touring opera has sacked half of its players in a bid to replace them with, quote, diverse musicians as required by Arts Council England. The dismissal came out of the blue. Here's what the freelance players were told on Friday by the company's boss. So like you said, he posts the letter here. And uh, let, let me uh, just read a little bit of it. It says, I know that all those players have achieved distinction in their work with other groups, talking about these diverse uh, musicians in their teaching and in other fields. I recognize, too, that this last 18 months has been extremely difficult for freelance artists and technicians. I know that you are not likely to read gratitude into this message, but I assure you that I do feel grateful for what you have brought to ETO, English Traveling Orchestra uh, Opera, in the seasons during which you have played so far. So that comes from their music director, uh, uh, allegedly, a letter that was uh, sent out by the group to these musicians. First and foremost, we're talking about freelance con contracts. We aren't talking about employment positions. We're talking about an orchestra that, you know, operated without having to provide, uh, as far as we know, uh, full-time employment, health insurance, benefits. other benefits. You know, they, they scoot under that radar by offering these freelance contracts year after year that these uh, musicians you know, accept year after year. And I, I get it how it is uh, out here as a musician. And that's what they need to be mad at. Not at the fact that those contracts have stopped for the sake of diversity. That, that's the, the, the first thing I think on that. But, you know, secondly, it's the Arts Council of England who is also just sort of staying out of it. There is actually an update to this article that was published today, uh, basically with a, an, a statement from the Arts Council of England, which, you know, is sort of the, the larger organization over the English traveling opera, maybe like the, the big union uh, organization or whatever mm -hmm. over there, basically saying, look, we didn't tell them to send out this letter. 
we're staying out of it. And I think that's very telling as well. What would it look like for the Arts Council of England to actually take a stand and say, yes, this is something that we we need to do, or this this is something that we disagree with, but X, Y, and Z, you mm-hmm. know, sort of that, that so-called neutral place isn't actually neutral. So I think, you know, that's that's something as well. But, you know. That's a stance. Yeah. Staying, yeah. Tr- saying you don't have a stance is a stance. Is a stance, yeah. And, you know, again, like I said, uh, they need to be mad at the uh, generations of systemic racism. It's so easy for, and, and I was thinking, of, you know, we were talking about this with the Big Brother issue as well. How quickly do we forget about not the years or decades, but the generations of inequities, especially in this field. We forget about all of that when one thing is done to try to fix that, because none of these issues can be fixed overnight. But we do one thing. They do one thing to try to fix that. And all of a sudden, they're the bad guys. Mm-hmm. They're the racists. Mm-hmm. Woke culture yeah. is taken over. Yeah. And, you know, of course, as is true with all of these slip disc articles, the comment section is something else. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not even going into that comment section, but Anyway, uh, any any ideas or or, or any fall, any thoughts? Fall, fall, if fall. you had to, <laughs> it's, fall, fall, I, fall. I know it's I, I know it's sort of hyperbolic, but I'm gonna ask anyway. This is called triloquy. <laughs> I almost don't want to ask, but I will. You get the pink slip because it's time for them to diversify. <laughs> what are you gonna say? <laughs> what are you gonna do? <laughs> Well, damn! I guess I'm getting. I guess I'm gonna go out and look for a job. I don't. I don't think that's gonna happen. Certainly not where you work. But again, we're not talking about people getting fired for the sake of diversity. Where there, this this article, uh, that letter being, makes it clear they're, not being that they're just not being rehired and renewed. And you, if you have a problem with that, that means there's some protections that you need to be fighting for for your job instead of blaming this on a position that was never yours. Couldn't they just have easy, easily have lost the position to somebody who's a better player? Yes, they could have, but you know they don't think about that. They don't think about that at all. What if they're a better player and black? <laughs> Ooh. anyway uh dark shout out uh as usual to uh norman lebrecht i think all of this is funny i'll have the uh i'll have the links uh in the description hey if you feel a way about this if you would feel slighted if your freelance contract didn't get renewed because all of y'all up in there are white and none of y'all have done anything to fight for diversity in those spaces but now you're mad because somebody else wants to diversify how much work of diversifying in this space did you do for all of those years getting this freelance contract that's my question for them mm-hmm. that's my question for them so i don't want to hear it anyway uh to transition us out of this first movement into the second movement we're going to hear from a soprano of color her name is sumi joe and she is performing one of my favorite tunes from all of opera in uh, Strauss's Deflator Mouse. There's a, it, first of all, it's a, it's a, uh, an opera all about champagne. You know, mm-hmm. people are drinking champagne and getting in trouble and the chambermaid dressing up as somebody else. Anyway, you, you know how romantic mm-hmm. operas can be all whimsical. Anyway, at one point in the opera, uh, there's a, a character who comes to the party and she sings the laughing song and i'm laughing at all these people mad at uh diversifying efforts and uh again like i said reality tv and the pageants and these orchestras in the nfl y'all are so funny so we're gonna listen to a little bit of strauss's laughing song from deflator mouse to get us into the second movement 
love that piece of music. And listen, I'm going to tell the truth, Scott. This is called Triloquy. When I was looking for recordings of the laughing song to share today, this was not the first or second or third recording that I came on. Why? Why did I end up selecting this one? Do you, you were remember? looking for something with a little bit more depth, some oh, okay. richness. Oh, some okay. richness. Oh, okay. So every time that we're talking about, oh, well, you're just doing this or choosing that or whatever because they're black or they're a person of color. Well, maybe the recording is better. Maybe their musicianship, maybe the folks who that, uh, that opera orchestra over there gave the contracts to are actually qualified to be in the space. See, people forget <laughs> that when you hire diverse and when you make these equitable decisions, it's not like you're just throwing anybody into the ring. These people are qualified. These people can play this music and they right. deserve to be there. And quite honestly, they deserve to be there uh, more than you because I believe that the article and the letter that those musicians got said half the orchestra was sacked. So sorry that you weren't on the half that got to stay. Damn. <laughs> Chili. <laughs> Ooh, goodness gracious. They are, they are something else out here. All right. This is movement two, where Scott and I share a piece of music that we have been repeating over and over and over all week. Just uh, taking that repeat and here on Triloquy, we're going to take the second ending and talk a little bit about why we were repeating that music so much and why we loved it. Scott, how about you get us started this week in the second movement? What you got? I've been letting, letting the algorithm pick for the last couple of days because I've been trying to get a bunch of shit that I should have thrown away when I moved into the house 15 years ago. Uh, you're, doing a, you're doing a little fall cleaning, yeah, or late summer cleaning. Yeah, and I'm trying to get rid of stuff. And so the algorithm just sort of took over. And I found myself uh, down a jazz uh, listening rabbit trail for a while. And Courtney Bryan's mm -hmm. uh, recording started to come across. Yeah, member of the and, Triloquy family. Uh, Opus 91, if you want to go back and listen to her. But um, then it tripped on over into some of the stuff that she wrote for orchestra and voice. Mm -hmm. um, part of the, the, the way that her vocal... I didn't get the vocalist name from the YouTube recording, but um, it... I, I felt her jazz aesthetic working in to the classical realm as well. Mm -hmm. And this was something that, you know, again, we talk about the idea of being challenged. You know, uh, a lot of her approach here is new to me. And part of it I'm excited about. And part of it I, I feel like I have to go back and listen to and give it uh, uh, maybe fresher ears or give it more attention you know, so what I'm saying is, is that there are there are definitely moments in here that really interest me and, and grab my attention, and there's others that I feel like I have to go back and go, okay, wait, what is she trying to tell me here? Let's take a listen. This is uh, a little bit of "Yet Unheard" by Courtney Bryan.
That's Helga Davis, by the way. That's the name of that um, soprano singing there in the voice and from the perspective of Sandra Bland. I don't mm-hmm. think you mentioned that. So, you know, we have a, a poem that tells that story being performed in front of this orchestra by a black woman, music written by a black woman. And, you know, again, I think we just have a recentering of the issues and the and the conversations we need to be having. When we talk about police brutality, we tend to center black men who are in fact, you know, we are disproportionately dealt with by the police. That does not mean that black women do not fall victim as well. You know, I don't know if enough people have said it or or are are in on this part of the conversation, but that mugshot we have of Sandra Bland, they say that she was dead when that photo was taken. Oh my god, I hadn't heard that. They laid her on the floor and opened her eyes and took a, a picture no. to make it seem like that she was actually booked when she came in. So, oh. you know, there are so many fishy things about that story and pieces of music like this help remind us of the things that were missed or the things that uh didn't uh didn't come out. It's it's interesting how conversations around police brutality have changed based on what we happen to learn from the whole uh, George Floyd murder. The fact that we probably would have never known about the way he died if it wasn't on tape. Yeah. The fact that we know based on the trial that the reporting from the police off from the uh, from the police was different and didn't even mention what had happened out there in front of of cup foods you know the the power that people have to really spread information and to get the truth out there and that plays a major role in not only the way that that police officer was dealt with but in the in the broader conversation so I hope that um, everyone will go check out this piece of music yet unheard by Courtney Bryan, because not only is it an incredible piece of music, a poignant piece of music, but a piece of music that we need so that we can remember the untruths that surround that story. That's keep, around that and story. keep the names keep the names alive keep the names heard say her name sandra bland so yeah thank you scott for bringing that in and thank you courtney Bryan, for writing that and really uh, incredible piece of music i'll link uh, this youtube performance we're looking at dust in the to description. dust yeah dust to dust is interesting as well and also just let youtube uh, uh take you on a little trip through her jazz stuff it's a good fun yeah generation y i think is the uh, piece of music that we featured last time and i actually put that piece of music into the mix down in um, down in St. Louis. I didn't mention I've been virtually guest hosting their morning show and uh, Generation Y by Courtney Bryan uh, made it uh, through the playlist that I put together for them. So be nice. sure to check out all of that stuff. All right. Well, um, I'm turning to one. You know, I, I've already I spent what twenty thirty minutes uh, railing on the uh, on the white man com, uh, conductors. Well, here I am finna celebrate one. So, <laughs> okay, but this is what happened. This is what happened. So over the weekend, I was catching up on the Spike Lee documentary that uh, everyone has been talking about. Nine uh, eleven to uh 2021 and a half i think mm-hmm. is what it's called but um he he's he's really centering new york spike lee and uh and all of the folks who sort of contribute to the spirit of new york as it relates to the story of 9-11 so as as he's uh going through this documentary toward the end i think of uh, part three of the documentary i'm hearing this music that sounds really familiar to me that i really like but i can't quite remember what it is and spike lee in his genius you know after it's done just flash 
Ashes, the name of the piece and the con, uh, composer, as as all of the creators uh, should. And I was reminded that it was a piece, a suite by Leonard Bernstein called On the Waterfront. I did do a little refreshing reading about it. You know, uh, was a, a true crime film that he wrote the score for and all that sort of thing. I think that's great. But I think uh, what I really hear in the composition from Leonard Bernstein is an understanding of different communities and the different aesthetics connected to those different communities. So if we listen to the opening here, uh, there's a horn solo and it reminds me very much of the spirit of the spiritual. Let's take a little listen. Maybe he didn't have the spiritual in mind when he wrote those opening bars. But do you hear kind of what I mean? I I think about the way that um, Florence Price's uh, first symphony starts with that bassoon solo or the English horn solo that the Afro-American symphony, the William Grant still starts with. I can name many others. The There's a horn solo at the beginning of William Levy Dawson's Negro folk symphony. So it, it for, so understanding that corner of the repertoire and understanding Leonard Bernstein's relationship with communities of color, specifically black folks, I can't help but to to hear that in there and, mm. and only imagine that that's a thing. Uh, but but the other part of this piece of music, uh, one of the other parts of this piece of music that really is, it's, excites me is the active nature. And again, that so-called crunchy sound, that contemporary sound that uh, Leonard Bernstein put into this piece of music decades ago that you know inspired Spike Lee to uh, include the music as a way of speaking to the, the chaotic havoc of 9-11 in New York and everything that was going on there, but you know, just in, in, incredible music. Here's a, a little bit more of Bernstein's On the Waterfront Suite. In a world full of performances of uh, symphonic dances from West Side Story, Candide Overture, all of that uh, stuff, you almost think that old Lenny Bernstein didn't have it in him, that that sort of stuff. But that that would get me on the front of my seat if I'm in the car listening to the radio or god forbid in the concert hall hearing that oh i would be completely excited and i think that there are so many more people who can uh, be excited about orchestral music if they have the through line that spike lee created he's centering new york specifically folks from brooklyn of which you know leonard bernstein is one going through the entire catalog of his music and finding the sounds that can really connect with a moment in time a a a historical moment that impacted 
all of us or most of us who were alive uh, at, at the time and, you know, really just bridging that gap. I'm, I'm really excited to get to revisit this piece of music, to listen to it in the shower or when I'm uh, or cleaning up or, or whatever, despite the fact that this is by, you know, the, the, the prototypical white male uh, conductor. It's really great music that can connect to, again, our, our real true lives. And it sounds a little different. It's not as friendly as Ina Klein and Nox music or, or Beethoven 5. And yet it's completely great. I, I hope that more people will go back and revisit the suite from On the Waterfront by Leonard, Leonard Bernstein. Did you, um, you know, and, and again, thinking about the fact that Spike Lee included this in his 9-11 documentary, and that's the reason why I remembered it and the reason why probably a million people will now know a new piece of music. Did you uh, did you have any takeaways uh, from that documentary? Were there moments that hit you particularly hard or or things that you didn't know about that you learned from the documentary? The water evacuation. Oh, yeah, yeah that's right. I had right. no idea. Oh, and okay, and here I am just overlooking the obvious. That's why on the waterfront must yeah. have been, been included. Yeah, that like 800,000 people were, were uh, evacuated by the water taxis. Yeah, I'm not there. sure of the number, but uh, it was a lot, and I never heard about it until that documentary. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, you talk about finding this ideal piece of music. Obviously, Spike had, uh, you know, some producers that knew their stuff. Mm -hmm. So shout out to them. And also you have to admire the way Spike tells a story because there were so many times where things would start off with levity and laughter and, and sure. uh, you know, upbeat. And then all of a sudden you realize that you might have a little bit of tear or a knot in your throat hearing somebody tell a story. Yeah. And you go, wait a minute, how did we get here? Yeah. You know, he, he, he really, really paints a landscape with the way that he does interviews. And I, I, it's so interesting because I think Spike Lee is good at bringing the lightness out of the conversation out of many people. Yeah. But if you go back, every one of the interviews that involve somebody black, they're laughing half the time. And this is a, a, a documentary about 9-11. But he did a lot of screaming. There, too. There, he, <laughs> there's still that rapport. And, yeah. you know, and you, you talk about Spike Lee's uh, team of producers, and I'm sure they're out there. But I also have to name that Leonard Bernstein was embedded in the community. He's someone who folks know. I remember uh, years ago watching The View and uh, Whoopi Goldberg talked about some of her earliest memories. You know, her mom would take her to the park and Leonard Bernstein would be conducting. So he isn't someone, from my perspective, who was just sitting up in this ivory tower, you know, conductor of the New York Philharmonic. He was down on the ground mm -hmm. and he was dealing with people of color, you know, black folks, uh, queer folks, and really trying to make the world a better place. As often as I can, I remind people that Leonard Bernstein was there when the stars came out down in uh Alabama, the uh, the rallies for voting rights, you know, Nina Simone famously uh, performed, of course, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was there giving speeches, but Leonard Bernstein was there as well. And I haven't been able to find any footage of him speaking. The, the images are there. But anyway, um, you know, someone who I, I really think that we have to name uh, and uh, think about in a more dynamic way than we currently do. I, I think to some extent, a, a little bit, we're getting away from uh, symphonic dances from West Side Story and Candide and, and digging into more of his stuff. You know, Leonard Bernstein has symphonies sure. and, and, and all sorts of stuff. But, you know, also the work he did away from the podium is very uh, important to note. And for all of these people complaining about 
uh, contracts not being renewed. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. if you were doing the work that Leonard Bernstein was doing, maybe you would have been on the half of the orchestra that gets to stay. All right. Whoops. So th- that's I-, I can't get over that fact <laughs> just quite yet. So, again, <laughs> okay. when we're talking about white men in positions of power and white men who feel like, oh, don't even apply the uh, the, the woke gang is, is taking over and they don't want us in those spaces. Well, look back to folks like Leonard Bernstein, who did the work and who somebody like Spike Lee feels comfortable platforming because you have to admit Spike Lee's not gonna not gonna have anybody's music on his right. stuff. Right. You know, especially considering his history and these conversations. So yeah. shout Ter- out to Terrence yeah. Blanchard wrote the original music for it. So yeah, yeah, all of the original music. So yeah, shout out to Spike Lee. I definitely uh, uh suggest that documentary. I'll have um a, a link. it's on HBO, I think, but I'll I'll put yeah. some information in the um in the description of this and shout out to the late great Leonard Bernstein. Go check out the On the Waterfront suite that he wrote. All right, well we're getting up on the third movement here. Today's guest we have um a returning guest. Uh Katie Henriksen was featured way back in Opus Nine, I believe. One Whoa. of the one of the baby opuses of Triloquy. And uh, she comes back to talk about her work as a concert promoter, as a podcaster and everything uh in in between. Katie um uh, for folks who weren't here, I'm guessing a lot of people weren't here way back then, but she was actually uh, working in public radio when yeah. we had our uh, interview, when we had our conversation. We actually recorded the interview, Scott, over ISDN. Yeah. You know? so, <laughs> so, you know, kind, kind of old school for folks who uh, know what that sort of technology is. But uh, since her last interview, she's moved on into an independent role, has her own 501c3 um, and, and all sorts of stuff that we talk about in our interview where we start um, uh, is talking about Katie's work as a concert promoter and putting together concerts to platform new music, new music artists, you know, breaking down the status quo of classical music by uh, booking performances from artists who do the same thing. But, you know, the issue of COVID and and what does all of that mean in these days when when we're talking about going to concerts and planning concerts. So that's where we start our conversation. To get into the conversation, um, I'm going to feature the music of one of the artists that was actually featured on her podcast, Sound Off. This artist um, is called Kasim Nakvi, and they actually have a piece of music called Brutal Moderna. How, how perfect is that, where, <laughs> where we start our conversation? So here's Brutal Moderna by Kasim Nakvi, and here's my conversation with Katie Henriksen. huge for me. I, I'm taking everything very seriously. I actually uh, wrote wrote an editorial in I Care If You Listen uh, last winter, and it seems to be the same. That it, it resonates just as much right now. So the whole premise was talking about how um, 
uh, people who are creating classical music or this really pertains to any, any art, really, it's like we're not seen as valuable unless we're of privilege because we're not supposed to create unless we have a lot of money, right? right. <laughs> um, and so it's like all the all, all, all of these artists I know who made, uh, you know, Spotify's around, people, artists, performers aren't making any money from recordings at all. So mm-hmm. they've been told to tour. And here it is. We were for this last year and a half and now more, they've been told not to tour, but now tours are back. So where, where do you draw that line? Where do you, where do you come up with something where you're, you're still supporting touring musicians and artists and cultivating a community through live music, but doing it responsibly and safely. So basically what I've come up with is we have here where I am, there's this amazing like 1920 parking garage in downtown Fayetteville and it's a garage. So it's open air and, but it's also covered. So, so if it rains or storms or whatever, we're, we've got it all covered and we can produce these really awesome socially distanced concerts. And also the residence is amazing. It's like just, mm-hmm. just really open wide residences. Um, so that's really kind of what I'm doing. I have uh, Tatsuya Nakatani, who's an experimental percussionist coming through in September. And then I have a group, a duo called Sky Creature, and that's uh, vocalist uh, Majel Connery, who also does synths. Uh, and she is someone I connected with actually last winter. Uh, she was in, she was the vocalist in this group, Oracle Hysterical, who you may know. They they do all this cool stuff where they have like a mixture of like Baroque instruments with like. Uh, electric guitar and bass mm-hmm. and and major singing uh she does like uh she mixes opera in with like post-punk and all this other stuff uh so i'm really excited and i kind of was like i really i really want to be able to host this type of experience but i also want to do it safely so yeah, that's kind yeah. of what i'm doing it's 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 really tricky though there are uh, a number of artists who have, and again, just even outside of, of Western classical, who have said, okay, at all of my shows, you have to have uh, been vaccinated and, and show a negative test or or whatever to, to get in. And it seems like depending upon the genre or the type of music, that conversation is engaged differently. Maybe at a country show, folks are, you know, are pissed, or maybe at a hip hop show, that's not, you know, something that folks are, are happy to to see. Do you think um, the the spaces in which we exist are are more you know willing to go along with those guidelines? Is the culture of of you know vaccine status that we've seen unfold um, play a, a relationship with new music audiences, classical music audiences, and and everything in between? Well, I I mean I I kind of feel this goes back to this idea of privilege too. I mean I think mm-hmm. that there's there's so many levels of privileges that come with being able to like safely produce a small, like, for example, my, I can do small scale concerts, whereas like some other touring acts, they like need to have these big, huge concerts in order for it to make sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's something where Trillium is really able to do things differently. And I do, I, and also just the, the, the socially distance and then like, that kind of, for me, I guess I'm kind of long-windedly going around the question here. Um, <laughs> no worries. So the, the, for me, Trillium is like the whole premise of what I was doing was all about small scale. And so I mm-hmm. think there's an opportunity. I mean, even when the pandemic hit, I kind of saw that putting together concerts in non-traditional, not concert hall settings 
and, and, and reconfiguring the boundary between audience and performer was the whole idea. So I, I saw that this, this opportunity, especially if you're doing a safe out, outdoor distance show, um, it, it kind of translates very easily for a trillium where maybe if you're, you're doing a, a, a black box concert hall show, it's a lot trickier. You're indoors, you've got the seated rows and all that kind of stuff. Um, but I do back to your question. I do feel like audiences that are uh, contemporary classical ish leaning tend to be people who say, yes, we should get the vaccine and we, we we're going to go along, but you know, it, there it's, it's, it's across divides. I know that people are talking about like that. It's all like because of Trump or whatever, but it's actually, mm-hmm. I know, I actually know people who are like on the far other side of the spectrum who are also like not wanting to mask and not wanting to vaccinate. So it's like, I don't know. I can't, yeah. I, can, I can't wrap my head around it at this point. So <laughs> Yeah, well, I mean, for all of the ways that the world uh, has changed in uh, this past year, maybe even uh, the past couple of years, I think back to your being um, on, you know, for all intents and purposes, on the ground floor of Triloquy, you were featured way back in Opus 9. And, you know, something that I have been dying to ask since then um, pertains to uh, the the career shift that you saw shortly after your feature. You know, when you were on Triloquy last, you were, you know, in public radio, local radio doing that um, whole thing. And now that's that's not the case. So I, I wonder if I can ask what what happened after your your last Triloquy feature? Why did you decide to jump ship uh, when it comes to public radio? Yeah. Well, I mean, there's a, that, there's a lot of things that go into play there, but I, I have been in public radio for eight years and I am based in Arkansas. I know that we talked about how I was in Arkansas and I needed to be here. Um, I'm raising a daughter here and my family's all here. So it was kind of like one of those things where I, I really, I'm really based in Northwest Arkansas. I don't have, I, I couldn't like look at different possibilities and mm-hmm. like moving to a larger market say, or whatnot that are kind of traditional career trajectories. If you're wanting to like stay in the public radio and kind of continue pushing, pushing your career forward. Um, there was a station manager change and also just, uh, at my station, very much a push towards news, news formats, mm-hmm. um, because the station was a mixed, uh, mixed, uh, format. So we had music and news, but they were shifting more and more and more towards news, they shifted my programming to the evening when it used to be in the daytime and just weren't giving any resources. And I was like, I think this is a sign. This is, this is like a chance for me to really, uh, change things up. So I took the plunge, uh, became self-employed. Um, and I'm doing lots and lots of different things. I don't even know where, where to start with that. Um, (laughs) I I did, I did start doing, uh, right after I left the station, I, I did, uh, publicity for new Amsterdam records. And that was like an amazing opportunity. And it's a record label I've loved for a long time. And I knew about them because I, I, I put, uh, I program new Amsterdam releases on my show all the time. And I interviewed artists and things like that. Um, so I had the opportunity to kind of really go deep with the music PR side of things. So that's what I'm doing now. I do music PR through Riot Act Media. And then I really took this idea of uh, figuring out a way to make my podcast a, a national, international podcast instead of something that's uh, just for the local airwaves. Um, so I do this podcast sound off now. And actually, the, the first season did have... Um, 
number of new Amsterdam artists, which was kind of random because I started the podcast before I left KUAF, before I was even working with New Amsterdam. But then I didn't produce it and actually launched the season until after I was already with New Amsterdam. So Caroline mm -hmm. Shaw is a guest, Nellie Drashem is a guest, um, Anthony McGill's a guest, um, Shara, Shara Nova, My Brightest Diamond, she was a guest, all sorts of people. And then I've yeah. got my second season that's coming up that I'm producing, and it's got a roof off job. Um, let's see, gosh, I'm blanking out. I've got so many Cocky King. Um, Let's see. Um, I'm blanking out. Of course, all, all, all sorts but, of great people. But yeah, co contemporary, classical, and hybridity. I really like. So I, I saw the limitate. Like when I talked to you about doing classical radio in Arkansas, there were like there were advantages, and that it was a smaller market, and there was like the station manager was not. He kind of let me do my own thing. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't as rigid as like a larger market that was like already kind of like we know our classical audiences and we know what they listen to. Um, my station manager kind of let me kind of play loose with the boundaries. And so then sound off is just like kind of a continuation of that. It's even more loose and it's not even necessarily classical. It's the premise is hybrid sounds. So music that challenges the status quo, like music that just for whatever reason is is challenging what our norms are, what um, what the canon is, all these kinds of things. Um, because I've, I've my background's in gender and music, and I've yeah. always loved like so many different types of music. So I think for me, even when I was in classical music as a as a host, I was always trying to widen the range of what that meant. Uh, because I mean, I love all kinds of music, as I know you do, and I know that yeah. you've probably gotten the like, well, what what you're, I remember one time I had a, I was at a, a roots music festival and I said, it was a classical host. What are you doing at a roots music festival? Yeah. It's like, really? You don't put us in silos like that? Right, you know? right, right, right. Uh, as, and we're definitely going to get into um, sound off, but before we leave uh, the subject of radio in particular, you know, something that's been ringing in my head a few weeks ago, one of my favorite podcasters said, I have, and this is more hip hop based, this podcast, but um, he basically said, I hadn't heard anyone actually say the word radio in 10 years. We talk about popular radio shows that, you know, are also offered on digital platforms, on YouTube and, and those uh, sorts of things. But just the, the institution of radio as a thing seems to be fading behind some of the content that it, it platforms. Do you still consider, you know, after all the time that you've spent away from the live microphone do you still consider radio one of those means of creating this new ecosystem that we're working toward you know challenging these status quos is is radio still poised to be able to do that i mean i think it is but it's 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 totally different from from i mean so we have the terrestrial radio signal which is like so i think there's still something to be said for like getting on those airwaves because mm -hmm. we have to think about all the people who don't even have access to internet through to to stream these things so yeah. like i know I, my head is like i'm i'm very digital i'm always like i'm on all the platforms and i'm streaming streaming's just like second nature to me but there's a lot of listeners who don't i mean i even my sister lives 
rurally in part of Arkansas and she doesn't have the internet at where she lives. It's mm-hmm. like, she can't, she still wants to listen to like a CD or turn on the radio to like actually hear music for her. So I think we're doing a disservice if we're thinking that everyone's online all the time and has access to everything when that's not necessarily true. Um, I also think it's, it's so busy out there. So mm-hmm. I do still consider myself radio because I, I know when I say, sometimes when I say I do a podcast, it's like, what does that even mean? You know, right. like, I mean, a podcast is literally just like you put an, a, a, like a sound file online so that people can stream it. And that's basically how it is. So it can be anything. And so I, I try to explain that, like, I'm I'm a, I've, I'm a longtime audio producer, so it's like I'm I, I'm putting together like an actual show. So sometimes I try to call my podcast a show instead of yeah a podcast, just because of the perceptions and the things that people get in their heads. Um, Especially considering that at the beginning of the pandemic, um, everyone started a podcast. You know, it was sort of like this this boredom project instead of you know a, a focused thing. And, and not to you know speak down on the on the quarantine era podcasts, but I mean, I think we definitely saw an explosion in in that regard. Um, uh-huh. To 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 a to a similar point, you know, we've also really seen an explosion of the idea of challenging the status quo in classical music, Western classical music, however we want to call it. And, you know, we both know that a lot of work um, has been put into that, you know, before we were talking about race and gender in the way that we have been for the past uh, couple of years. What's your take on how that conversation, again, of challenging the status quo has evolved in light of world tragedy, in light of the of the pandemic? Do you think we're headed in the right direction generally? I mean, I think there's, there's like a, I think we are in general, although there's just, I mean, there's also still tons of performative actions being that are taking place. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I think, <laughs> I think that, I think the big, I mean, honestly, I think the people who are independent, like I've always been staunchly independent minded and thinking and but at the same time, it's like getting institutional support is a huge help financially to yeah. make things happen. Um, but institutions are typically still so far behind and also like to do those performative things to make themselves look good. Um, so I think it's been really beneficial for me to be staunchly independent and like have my own podcast where I'm like, actually, the vision is all mine, 100 percent. I can do whatever I want to Um that being said, it's just, uh, it's just so the landscape is so noisy out there. Mm-hmm. So it's like, we go back to like talking about platforms and streaming and how accessible everything is. It's just, um, it's just, it's, it's harder. I mean, like, it's so weird to me that I can like pick up my phone and look at someone else's internet experience or feeds. It's, it's that they don't see any of the same things I do. Right. So I think that's what we're dealing with now. I'm really glad that we are seeing um, conversations and mainstream publications or like symphonies are programming more diversely than they ever have before. But I, 
I don't know what that's going to look to look like two years down the road when this isn't a fad anymore. Yeah, know? exactly. So. Exactly. <laughs> and, you know, I, before we got on the line, I went and refreshed. I listened once again uh, to the latest episode of Sound Off, the one uh, featuring Caroline Shaw. And, you know, first, I have to say, I really appreciate how polished the show is. One thing about podcasts is that they run the gamut when it comes to, um, you know, people plugging in the microphones and just going going for it. And some of the most popular and successful shows, you know, do have that feel. And then other very successful shows have the very, you know, polished and, and, and put together feel. I wonder um, what podcasting um, has taught you or what perspectives you've gained from podcasting when it comes just to presenting, to content creation, maybe even to interviewing, you know, not everyone who does interview-based podcasts, um, not all of us have the journalism degree. Or, or things, you know, what 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 skills, you know, have have you uh, sort of picked up along the way of creating your own content independently? Um, gosh, I I think really for me, honestly, it it goes back to a a, a deep curiosity. So for me, hmm. it's all about a deep curiosity in whatever subject I have, whoever I'm talking to, the music. Um, and having a compelling conversation. And then once I have that, it's about making that same compelling conversation happen, but like in a more produced sense and weaving in that music. So another thing for me is like, I think I, I really wanted to weave the music in directly with the conversation. I didn't yeah. want it to be like, blah, blah, blah. Oh, now we're going to have some music. I just want it to be a natural progression. And yeah. I don't really know it's kind of, I don't really know how I form formulated that. Um, because I did, when I launched my podcast, it was, there was like an uphill battle because, you know, once I, when I had my two hour format radio show and you have to do certain ways of talking and things and delivery, it was like finding a whole new rhythm. Um, so that was weird. I don't really know that I have any tips other than like, just kind of like, I'm going to go in and spend lots and lots of time really thinking, honing in on, what the most integral parts of these conversations are, and then finding the most compelling pieces of music, um, putting them together. And it's really, it's, I don't find myself as like, I'm not like a, I'm not like one of those people who's like a super producer. Like, I don't, mm -hmm. I don't, I'm not, I don't have like, I don't like have a hundred files open in the multi-track or anything right. like that. Um, I mean, I, my studio is, is just, uh, a plug-in USB road mic and that's pretty much it. And then I had, I had a friend who had composed the, the intro outro music theme music. And then I picked out like the parts that felt right for putting that in there. And I don't know, I just kind of played around. I mean, I think that's yeah. a lot of it, right? It's like Trial playing around, <laughs> just, just, just try it, try, experiment, play around, do what feels right. Um, and, and just, I don't know. It's a pretty intuitive process, if that makes sense. Yeah, for me. no, that, yeah, that definitely makes sense. I, I appreciate it. You know, again, back to your conversation with uh, Caroline Shaw, I appreciated your uh, mentioning the collaboration with Kanye and even including some of that music. I know for a fact that that's something that most people who interview a woman like Caroline Shaw will not bring into the conversation or will not bring into the uh, project to that. 
are there um, narratives or or lines of questioning or conversation that you feel more comfortable engaging through your own work as opposed to you know a live radio or maybe even a podcast that you would produce in conjunction with a with a big organization? Well, sure. I mean, like it, it goes back to uh, what I said about working through an institution. There's just there's there's certain barriers that you can't cross, really, I guess. Mm-hmm. And being truly independent, it allows me to have more freedom to have maybe trickier conversations or touch on points that that I wouldn't get to if I was on like a, a public radio station. Yeah. You know? Um, or, or sometimes I, it, it, I, I have a chance to be more adventuresome. And I also, one of my things is also, I, I think we can all end up getting too comfortable um, with per, our perspectives and where we come from. And, and we're like talking to an echo chamber essentially. Right. And that's always one of my, my guiding principles is to always push outside of that bubble and our boundaries and kind of uh, challenging ourselves in the process. Uh, so that's that's kind of how I approach all my interviews and, and all my subjects. And I, I'm always thinking about that and being like, how can I push this further? And also how can I like ha- have people really like be become really omnivorous with their their listening and their thoughts because I, I think there's so much we can all learn from from li- deep listening essentially, you know. Yeah. So yeah. I think about that idea of the echo chamber a lot because it's so easy for us to create content that really showcases the uh, sensibilities of folks that we agree with or are or, or doing the doing the same work. Have you have you thought much about what it means to you know challenge? Uh, you know the the you know let you you uh, Anthony McGill is also in your um, in your roster. You know what what it would mean to like challenge someone like that, someone so respected in in classical music. When it comes to breaking again, breaking down the the status quo is is an on air argument something that <laughs> you're looking for, or is there a general vibe that you try to maintain when it comes to your collaborations? Yeah, I mean, I definitely not. I mean, I know there's all different types of interviewers. I'm I'm not I'm not hesitant to like to start discussing things that might feel thorny, mm-hmm. but at the same time, I'm definitely not. I'm not one of those interviewers who's going to like just let's, I want to be abrasive and I want to talk about, (laughs) let's get, I, I, I'm more interested in having a conversation where I'm connecting with that person somehow. Um, but also challenging myself, challenging them, kind of getting everyone to like rethink all of their positions and, and, and be more open about everything, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And I'll definitely, um, have links to, uh, sound off and, and, uh, some of the other work you're doing, but I also wanted to ask you, uh, a little bit about, uh, riot art media. You know, again, when we, when we think about classical music and changing the status quo, we tend to center orchestras or other performing arts institutions, but, you know, other forms of media journalism play a huge role in that, even even if we don't see it as such, I wonder if you could uh, talk a little bit about your work with uh, Riot Art Media. Oh, it's Riot, Riot Act. Riot Act. Act. I can't Riot read Act. my own hand. It's okay. My handwriting. Riot Act <laughs> yeah. Media. <laughs> yeah, no, Riot Act. Riot Act Media is awesome. They're a independent music PR firm that actually has been around um, since probably I don't know, like when they started. It's been like at least fifteen years they've been mm-hmm. around, and I actually got to know them as a journalist. So I, I was a I, I was a journalist who was covering artists that were represented through Riot Act Media, 
And then at some point now I'm, now I'm actually a publicist through their firm and it's really awesome. I, I think this, this touches on the fact that I was like raised in a classical music environment, but also with parents who like love Joni Mitchell and Chicago and all these other like Beatles, what have you. Yeah. And then uh, I went to school and I've st- studied violin and voice and all these things, but I was always interested in like, you know, like love Nina Simone. And then I loved indie rock. I love blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. So it depends like whoever, some people would get to know me and they're like, Oh, like when I was at the radio station doing a classical music program, some people saw me from my background as like mostly covering indie rock basically. And they're like, what do you know about classical music? And then the people who knew me from growing up, like my grandfather was a classical music professor, blah, blah. blah. And I grew up with like the harpsichord in my grandparents' living room and plucking on <laughs> <Wow>. it. <laughs> yeah, it's crazy. Um, and I would say plucking. And then I'm like, I realize you can't pluck a harpsichord. I was, <laughs> I was hammering on the keys. Yeah. Um, but it just, I've always felt in between. I also grew up as a Suzuki student and right. I don't know, some, some Suzuki um, players have this experience others don't, but it was like this in between where like, I mean, I didn't start traditionally classically. I was started Suzuki. So it's a very ear, ear method training. you learn how to like really hear things in order to play them. Um, I always felt in between. I wasn't really super theoretical about classical music and whatnot. And then I also loved like, it's like, I loved the cranberries. I was like into the mm-hmm. cranberries when I was in college, Mazzy star, all these awesome people. Um, so I, I don't even, I, what was your question? <laughs> well, yeah, sorry. No, just, just your work with, uh, with, uh, yeah. Riot Act Media. Oh, so okay. you're yeah. a publicist now with, uh, with yeah, so I mean, basically it kind of all goes back to like mixing it all up. And I also feel like what I was going to say is that I've always felt kind of othered because I've never really completely fit in anywhere. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've never completely, like I was a, a journalist, but that was like by night, a lot of times when I was like in my twenties and then I was at KYF and I was a classical music person, but I was also like interviewing Kathleen Hanna yeah. of Bikini Kill. And I, I, I've, always, I've always felt like really weirdly out of place, no matter what, because I like to blur the boundaries. And I feel like this the, um, that Riot Act is a great place for me because I can like actually do a lot of publicity with lots of artists who are challenging what, I don't, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm going off now. Oh, no, um, you're, but- <laughs> you're, you're great. I mean, and, and, you know, again, to uh, Riot Act, one thing I really appreciated reading as I looked over that website was the sort of fan first approach, as they say. And when you describe yourself as someone who, you know, can never really fit into a specific box, I feel like many of us actually have that experience. You know, I can I can definitely uh, speak to that. So when it comes to creating, uh, you know, uh, media from a fan first perspective, it seems like uh, the the meshing of genre, the cross pollination has to be a part of it, considering how many people are not strictly roots, strictly classical, strictly hip hop, you know? I don't, I mean, honestly, I don't think any of us really are. And that's when I, like, when I feel like I've been othered, I'm probably like, I mean, how most of us probably are othered all the time. Um, And, and I feel like, especially in our current structure of like highly, highly classified or like codified systems where you have to be this or labeled all the time. It's like, you know, that's what capitalism, like, like basically you, you, 
you, you've you've probably like seen like how the the label for genres that was actually a marketing term that oh, was yeah. come up with um to like kind of get get people like we're gonna go in the blues format or you're gonna be in jazz or you're gonna be in whatever. Mm-hmm. Um so I, I really love right now, I think that I, I think that I'm seeing a breakdown of those walls a little yeah. bit. I see, I feel like people are feeling more and more like they can like embrace all all encompassing things. I mean, we're people. We're we're all like mul- we have multiplicities inside of us, you know, and we should embrace it. I think it, it's been hard to do that. I think it's it, I think it's more messy. I think yeah. that it, you can't define it as easily and you can't quantify it as easily. So it makes it harder to like go climb the, do a career or like, even like people want that one line to like, say, well, what do you do? Yeah. It's like, well, I don't just do this one thing, you know? (laughs) I mean, and so I I love that, that we're, we're getting to the point where it feels like it's more acceptable to be that way. Yeah. I've been spending a lot of time really thinking about that question when you meet someone new and they're like, well, how do you spend your days? What do you do for work? It's it's almost easier to just say, well, I'm unemployed, you know, <laughs> and uh, because, you know, they, they really want to, you know, it's really a conversation starter. I feel like more often than not, but no, I, I definitely feel you there when you, when you use that word messy, you know, and, and I appreciate your highlighting the fact that it makes it more difficult to climb the professional ladder sometimes because there's, there, there's, so much um, uh, stagnation, I'll, I'll use that phrase, in the way that we look at media creation, especially uh, in proximity to uh, classical music. Uh, with, with all of that considered, um, and again, going back to the idea of changing status quos, who do you see as the opposition? When you're creating your media or, or diving into this work, are there types of institutions or types of individuals as you see on the other side of this of, of this front that we're that we're pushing on? Um, I don't I don't really feel like I have an enemies that I could name particularly. <laughs> and not necessarily um, enemies, but you know, you you have to admit the, that so so well, many venues, the, you know, right. just just are in one lane and that's it. Yeah. Um I I feel like so the status quo. So I'm, 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 I want to, what I'm really pushing against is, is quite simply that and, and yeah. like allowing us all to change our perceptions of, of the world, I guess. Um, I mean, I definitely think I am pushing specifically against a lot of the systems that have kind of kept the status quo in play, mm-hmm. whether it's like uh, museum institutions, uh, academic institutions, um, media institutions, corporate media, all the all that landscape. I mean, I'm challenging all of those systems. Um, I don't know to take it a little bit localish for me. So, for example, in Northwest Arkansas, the uh, Walmart headquarters is in Northwest Arkansas. Mm-hmm. So, uh, the Waltons, who are some of the richest people in the world, and it's the headquarters is right here. Well, Alice Walton has built an art museum called Crystal Bridges, and then they've she's also opened the Momentary, which is a contemporary wing of Crystal Bridges. Hmm. And so, there's this this museum culture that never existed in Northwest Arkansas, and there's lots of money to go around for the arts, but that gets very problematic when you're looking at uh, a super rich family that's union busting, that's like pro charter schools, that's doing all this stuff. But at the same time, they're like, 
well, we're making Northwest Arkansas rich with culture. Um, so I kind of see what I'm doing with my podcast and with my Trillium Salon series, live concerts. I'm challenging the institutional kind of like our philanthropic way of how we basically everything has to be through philanthropy or university culture, or like, I'm looking at creating something independently of that, because I think that's where, where we can actually truly challenge ideas, because I think it's like in the institutions, it's stagnant. Um, there's a lot of problems with philanthropy, which I don't need to get into. Right. <laughs> um, basically, it's basically philanthropy keeps uh, keeps the control in the hands of rich elite people. Mm-hmm. So, so um, and we need more people to say that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, I, I mean, that's what my that's I go that's who I'm challenging really. I sure, guess. sure. Uh, I, I really enjoyed uh, hearing uh, your contributions. I guess about a, a month ago now, a few weeks back uh, at the uh, New Music Gathering Conference, and as I uh, you know, went to different events and different performances there, I couldn't help but to think about, um, A, how enriched I was feeling, especially by the the different types of performances and the different types of uh, conversations, but B, what it would look like if, you know, pockets of that could become more permanent things. We talk about uh, the word, I talk about the word divestment a lot when it comes to um, to racial things, you know, Black folks building our own things that are ours because the big institutions aren't listening. I wonder if we um, broaden that a bit and talk about new music communities. Is that um, a more viable way forward. Do you do you think there should be more energy spent in building a uh, new independent uh, independent performing arts institutions and media organizations? Should the energy be going there instead of trying to fix the Met, trying to fix Juilliard and and all these other you know traditional big monsters in the field? Yeah, I, I mean, I think that especially if we want to see changes now, I mean, it has to happen at the mm. grassroots level. I mean, that's that's where where it'll all be. I I I I like to look back at things like uh, Black Mountain College that existed uh, in the 1930s and, and and the flourishing of the arts that happened, and that was a truly independent thing too. I feel like like the divestment and being truly independent is where. The change really will happen and 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 where we can have actual agency and autonomy to do the things to to make that growth happen at the same time we are we're existing in 21st century capitalism you know yeah. it's like i i can talk about the institutions here at play in northwest arkansas at the same time i am part of that ecosystem and i have to figure out how to work with that and, 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 and grow. Um, so I think you, that you can get, um, if you get too, um, too into like a a purist approach where you're Mm -hmm. like, you're like completely like, I'm not participating and I'm not interacting with that at all, that that can be problematic too, because then you end up siloing yourself off in essence, um, by not, by, by not like expanding the conversation. So I think, I think I, I look at ways to like dismantle these these structures from the outside, but also in a, as a way to help them maybe see maybe there's some people internally who can be like, I want to challenge this too. And so hopefully yeah. that leads to gradual change there as well. Yeah. But I, I think it starts with the grassroots and those of us who are on the ground, like doing independent thinking. 
Yeah. It's, it's sometimes it's hard to not want to completely burn the bridges and say, oh, let them rot. We're going to do our own thing. But I, I do think you, you make a very good point when it comes to, you know, collaboration on all levels toward uh, that change. And we need all different types of folks, I think, in the battle, people in the institutions, people completely outside of them and everyone in between, you know, just to to you know, make sure what we're working toward actually comes to fruition one day. But, but uh, before I ask you uh, my last question, uh, how can folks check out uh, Sound Off and uh, learn more about you and all of the other work you're doing? Sure. I have a website. It's not the most updated one, but you can get all my information <laughs> there. So that's katiehenriksen.com, which is K-A-T-Y H-E-N-R-I-K-S-E-N.com. Um, and you'll be able to find my my Instagram, my Twitter, which, uh, and then you can also go to anywhere you listen to podcasts pretty much to find sound off with Katie Henriksen, which is my podcast. Um, if, if you want to look at all the different links, I do the pod link dot to, uh, forward slash sound off, uh, to, and then it gives, it gives you the Spotify link, the cast box box link, the, Apple music one, the blah, 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 all the, all the ones, because yeah. we have to be in all the places now. Right. Yeah, you do. And there's, <laughs> and there's a, there's a conversation there, you know, uh, these, these, you know, Spotify's and Apple music's, you know, they, they have our, our content and are, are potentially benefiting from them in a way that's disproportionate to the way we benefit. And, you know, that's why a lot of people have gone to the Patreon model. That's, I think that's another conversation, but to, <laughs> to, uh, to put a bow um, on this one, I wanted to uh, close with a little bit of music. You know, when we talk about challenging the status quo, it's not just, um, an act. It's not just work. There's actual art that, you know, plays a role. So, um, you know, to that, I wonder uh, what you're listening to, what you could throw out to the audience as far as music or an artist that you feel like is challenging the status quo in the way that, you know, you're working toward. Sure. Okay. Okay. And I, and I, and I hate the, because there's always a hundred people to name. Right. (laughs) Um, well, do you, do you know Black Monument Ensemble? I don't think I'm familiar. No, I would okay. love to learn so Black, Black Monument. Moni- Black Monument Ensemble. Um, and they put out actually a release. It's been out a while now. Um, but Damon Locks runs the Black Monument, Monument Ensemble. And I love the textures that he's creating. And he's like, he's really kind of going between all these different worlds to collage sound. And he was also, he's in Chicago and they made the record, their last record during in the height of last summer's pandemic during Black, like, Black Lives Matter. And they like did a lot of stuff outside. And so you could hear like you could hear night bugs and all these different mm-hmm. things and all the textures. I'm really into like really cross genre stuff now. So, yeah, check out Black Monuments Ensemble. The new album is called Now. Damon is actually a guest in the second season of Sound Off, which I'm in production with. And so I hope that I can launch it soon. It, it kind of takes a back seat to like the day-to-day of stuff where you have to get get done right away. Yeah. <laughs> you yeah. probably know what I'm talking about. I definitely do. <laughs> <laughs> but we'll we'll definitely hear a little bit of a Black Monument Ensemble here. Katie, thank you so much for taking the time with me. Thank you, Garrett. It's lovely to talk to you. Thank you.
A little music there by the Black Monument Ensemble, a tune called Stay Beautiful. You know, Scott, when we talk about uh, flipping on its head the status quo of classical music and doing everything we can, we tend to do it from the, you know, the social side of things, the conversational side of things. But that's not the only place where that work has to be, where that work has to be done. Katie is just really incredible at finding the actual sounds that break down that status quo. I know this isn't music, uh, you know, this, this tune, Stay Beautiful by Black Monument Ensemble. I know that isn't music that a lot of the orchestral programmers, radio program directors are ready to put on at 1030 a.m. on a Wednesday. But we I, I think we're going to have to we're going to have to get there eventually, especially considering how many types of artists there are creating this music that we believe should be considered as classical as everything else. It's not happening, you know, again. So it's not all about the conversation pieces. It's also about the music itself and affirming the artists who deserve equal placement in those spaces. So yeah, shout out to uh, Katie for all of the work she's doing there. And that she's making it. It's good to hear the, you know, She's making it outside of the jobby job and has got her own 501. More now. of us, more more of us are. Is that giving you any ideas? Because I ought to give everybody some ideas. <laughs> one thing I wanted to uh, ask you, one of the things that I asked Katie was, you know, is it beneficial to name the oppressor? When we're talking about changing the status quo, we talk about it from a spatial sort of abstract point of view so often. But at the end of the day, there are individuals, there are institutions holding up the status quo that we're all trying to change, that we're fighting against. You know, we aren't holding back progress in our work. We're pushing for it, which means there are forces pushing against. Is it beneficial? Should it be or can it be seen as progress to personify the problem instead of just speaking about it abstractly? Yeah, because that's what gets the movement. If, uh, you know, in the article that you pointed out from the New York Times where Marin Alsop was mentioned and such, um, uh, one guy was, uh, I forget the gent's name, he said, people respond to pressure. Right. Yeah, I and, remember that. Okay, do they? though. So um, the, the thing is, is that if you don't apply pressure to the people that can make some of these decisions, mm-hmm. if you don't make it uncomfortable, then they're not going to get to the point where they realize that a change needs to happen. Hopefully you get some sort of an apology. Yeah. Um, so it, it's, it's a very early necessary step. You said something that I love. You said, make them uncomfortable. It's, it's, we need is, more of that. This is messy. It's messy work. It's, it's going to get messier before it gets cleaner, if you ask me. Yeah. And um, it, it's, a very, it's a necessary early step to name and make them uncomfortable. Carnegie Hall had a open call, sort of a town hall, a virtual town hall last week that I couldn't make because I was uh, going from one keynote speech to another appearance I had uh, last Friday. But, you know, that was born from a Facebook thread. And it's so easy for these large 
institutions to sort of wave off social media or wave off what somebody is saying on Facebook. But as, as we've seen and as we've been talking about, the Internet is a player and these institutions that are not used to having to respond to the people, just to, to the masses are having to, you know, that, that, that time is, is running out. And yeah. um, I hope something good came out of that uh, Carnegie hall conversation, because, you know, they're around here uh, putting up ads saying, Oh, we're featuring the world's best violinists. And guess what all their violinists look like? Joshua Bell. Mm-hmm. Anyway, let's get into the, um, <laughs> let's get into, into the triloquy, but yes, we, I, I feel like we have to get used and get comfortable with naming these institutions and naming these uh, individuals that we're pressing against. So again, shout out to Katie um, and shout out to everyone uh, trying to do this work to get us into our final movement of the trill that I want to highlight. As I mentioned, I've been guest hosting down um, in St. Louis virtually. And one of the pieces that uh, I included recently is called Blue Rondo a la Turk. It's by a group uh, called Project Trio. The uh, the most, I, and this is no shade, but the, the most famous from my perspective member of the group um, is the uh, the flute player who you know got all sorts of internet fame in the early days of YouTube by beatboxing on the flute. He has a oh, yeah. a, a beatboxing Mario video yeah. that has tens of millions of views. I had the pleasure of interviewing Project Trio when I was down uh, in in Knoxville. They perform with the Knoxville Symphony. So is he the he he beatboxed over uh, Peter and the Wolf, right? Sure, yeah, did that as well. That yeah. was that was fun. yeah, that one was good. So um, you, uh, Greg Patillo, I mm. believe his name is so we get to um, hear him do a nice little trill at the end of this tune called Blue Rondo a la Turk as we get into the final movement Oh, you know that one, the yep. uh, Blue Rondo a la Turk. Yep. Yeah. Uh, shout out to uh, Greg Patillo, also Eric Stevenson and Peter Seymour, members of Project Trio. There's some really great music they're putting out there. All right, we're in the last movement. We are in the triloquy. And you know what, Scott? This week, my my, my triloquy, my true and real isn't so uh, inflammatory. It, it just you know speaks to some of the, the moments that struck me this past weekend when we talk about the work we're doing and, uh, and decolonizing classical music. So as I mentioned uh, at the top of this opus, uh, the American Composers Forum had its Racial Equity Summit where you know we talked about uh, some of the things that we've be- been doing, holding ourselves accountable, You know, going back. We went back a couple of years ago to the goals we set and uh, to how that looks today. And there were also just a series of panels. And the final panel uh, was called What We Can Learn from Indigenous communities. I believe that's the uh, Mm. title of it. I'll have um, information there. But uh, there was uh, one of the panelists there was an indigenous artist. Um, His name is Brent Michael Davids. And he started by talking about the way we need to change our vocabulary. Again, we were talking about that a little bit today, you know, out of tune, uh, false tuning and and all that stuff. Well, he took it a, a step further and indicted the word music. He talked about how they don't really have in many indigenous languages, a word for music, but rather words that speak to 
how the music happens. He said the, the closest of. The, the closest word would be uh, songing or musicking, and, and that was really interesting to me. When we talk about music, when we talk about the way uh, we create barriers around music, uh, the way genre has uh, put pieces of music into little cubby holes. When we think about the act of musicking, of songing, I think it it breaks down some of those things because it removes the commodification of music. What if we did that in real life? What if what if we centered the artist instead of what the artist created? I think that could really change the game. It's it's one thing to say, um, oh, this is, you know, music uh, by Caroline Shaw, whose sound and this piece of music fits our sort of aesthetic that we're trying to maintain. You know, that's one thing. But wouldn't it be another thing to take all of her music and center her and platform it all? You know, the stuff with Kanye West, the stuff that doesn't necessarily uh, sound like there are orchestral strings and winds involved. I think taking that concept of songing, centering the act of making music instead of the pieces of music itself would be a huge thing in what we're what we're trying to do in, in decolonizing these spaces. And uh, I, I know a lot of folks aren't ready for that, but I don't know, that that inspired something in me. I had never thought about songing or musicking the act of and centering the person instead of commodifying the creation of those actions. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I thought of that. Um, uh, the, uh, one other, just two quick things I want to share. Um, we talked about, um, or did we already talk about things out of tune or, or false tuning? Something that um, I learned. You uh, alluded to it. Yeah. So uh, on, on the panel was a woman of... Uh, you know, of Korean descent, uh, as far as her, you know, genealogy, but was adopted as a child uh, to a family in the Netherlands. And that's how she identifies. So she talked a lot about identity and how identity is more than just genealogy, you know, what your family tree might say, or what your 23andMe might say, but your actual community and your actual uh, environment that you're uh, growing up in, you know, just a really interesting conversation there. But something that she put me on to was the fact that in Germanic based languages, in the same way that we say out of tune, when when you know, when you're away from that 440 or whatever, other languages, they say false, you're singing falsely, or playing falsely. That's not false. It's just outside of that Western European paradigm of being in tune and that whole thing. So, you know, it it leads me to think about what are the other ways in which our language is keeping us off track? You know, the ways that the colonization of our ears are keeping us off track. I'm going to do my best to stop using phrases like out of tune. I wonder, you know, and I'm sure there are many other things, maybe there are things that you're thinking about. But the last thing I want to highlight from this summit, um, there was a speaker who said, in essence, I took notes as I was listening. I'm sure I didn't get it down verbatim. But what I ended up writing down here was, you can't learn to be yourself in classical music spaces, because the art centers being someone else. That was something for me to hear. Mm. Let me let me read that again. You can't learn to be yourself in classical music spaces because the art centers being someone else. So so those are those are my trills for this week. I'm talking to all of the musicians, especially those of you uh, married, you know, still married to the definition of classical music 
that you were taught, that you were incorrectly taught. Think about the commodification of music and what it would mean to center the music-ing, the song-ing, centering the artists behind the music that we're platforming. What, what would that look like? What would that look like when we consider that whole person? I think it would change the conversation of art versus artist, for example, hmm. to center the person and not the music. I think there, there are benefits all over the place that we can um, that, that, that we'll be able to see if we can do that. Small pieces of our language out of tune. Let's phase that out. Let's let's continue to um, uh, do this equity equity work by affirming that there are ways of tuning that are different than our own and it doesn't make it out of tune it just puts it out of the tradition of western europe or i'll, I'll have to think about the, the my, my new phrase so-called out of tune or or whatever but but that's something to to think about and again finally think about the ways in which classical music has kept you from evolving as a person and learning about yourself and being your true self because you're so busy you're too busy trying to live up to the standards set by a culture that you don't belong to and that most of us don't have any proximity to. Let's think about that as we move forward, really uh, break down these microaggressions, listen to each other and work toward a better world. Thank you, everyone. And we'll see you next week.